This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Ken Dahlmeyer, President and Chief Operating Officer of Clarkson Grain Company. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry provides individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest and most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Ken Dahlmeyer next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. America's Crop Insurance Industry, providing individualized protection on more than 311 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. As tariffs and trade wars dominate the headlines in global agriculture, there's a growing segment of the industry that functions outside the lines of massive supplies of bulk commodities. Ken Dahlmeyer, as president of Clarkson Grain Company, and says they're operating on a different paradigm than others in the industry. We don't take a large commodity and try to push it out to our clients at volume. We actually turn that upon its head, and we ask our customers and our clients, how can we help you? How can we uh, provide you a supply chain that satisfies your need for, for quality, for food safety, and satisfies their customers' social values, and bring that supply chain to them reliably, on time, every time? We have created our own niche at that space between quality, safety, and reliability, but not to the 60 million bushel a day level. Where are your customers and where are your growers? We source grain everywhere from the Gulf of Mexico to Canada, from the Rocky Mountains to the Mid-South. We're located in Cerro Gordo, Illinois, which is just east of Decatur, so our sweet spot is through the I states. The nice thing about organics and the grain supply through there is we source through a wide swath of the United States and we're able to put wheels under it. So let's talk about the global customer and the U.S. customer. Is the U.S. catching up to those in other parts of the world that have a long time since demanded to know more about where their food comes from? Absolutely. That uh, that transparency is actually being driven right now in the United States. It's being driven by the millennials. It's being driven by the iGens. They are uh, much less concerned than, than, say, our parents were about calories. Whenever we were growing up, it was the, the discussion was more about calories per price. They're, uh, they are much more about how does this food uh, feed my social values? How do I influence those social values through the products that I purchase? And how do I choose those products through the transparency of that supply chain from the farmer through places like Clarkson Grain? through the food manufacturer and even that entire supply chain to the grocery store. That is much more important to this current generation than it has been anywhere through. And the United States is leading, really, that that piece. So there, there was just a, 
an updated data set that shows the three primary labels on finished goods. What are the three primary labels? One is the Energy Star label. Everybody understands what that is, and, and that actually drives a lot of, of pricing decisions and buying decisions. The other is the USDA organic label. Most people understand what that means, perhaps not what you know how you get to there, but perhaps but what that means, and it does drive buying decisions. The third one is the non-GMO project label. So people understand those three things, and those seem to be the three primary labels that not only affect buying decisions, but it but it affects buying decisions through social values and, and through those social norms. It, it, it's something unique, I think, in uh, in the past 15 years. So if we look at the bulk commodity business that's in the globe, and then we look at your specialty or identity portion of the world, what's the ratio? Oh, it's very, very small, of course. Um, organics is less than 5% of bulk. Specialties is, oh, probably less than 10% of bulk. But it is a way for our growers to diversify their operation so that you're not pushing a supply uh, you know, into the world market. You're trying to insulate yourself, diversify yourself from the volatility of that world market. And it doesn't take a change of the entire farm to take advantage of those marketplaces. Do you think the message and the desire towards sustainability from our domestic, but especially our global customers, Mm -hmm. is a way of evolution in the volume business? As we travel through some of the USDA trade missions, one that I was just recently involved with was in Japan, sustainability is is a big deal. It's a big deal globally. And that is is also growing. The the question is, how do you define sustainability? In, in some people's mind, it is packaging. In other people's mind, it's processing. In other people's mind, it's production. Sustainability also brings out transparency, which we talked about before. All of those, I think, are are the headwinds of a very changing marketplace as the global population, the global middle class, starts to come up. They're looking to buy more protein, a different type of protein, but they're also looking to understand and influence how that protein was produced. And sustainability and and transparency, some of the things that we're looking at with non-GM specialty markets, identity preserved specialty markets, and organic, I think are, are the beginnings of a real evolution in how our products are marketed. What crops do you source and how much of those are organic or of a specialty identity preserved nature? So we're primarily within Clarkson grain, corn and soy. We do some wheat. We also do some other markets around oats and and some different others. All of our crops are identity preserved. And on the soybean side, we are probably about 20% organic. On the corn side, uh, we're less, a little less than that. On the bulk side of the business, we fill Panamax vessels at big ports and we ship it overseas. Mm -hmm. Yours has smaller bins and smaller volumes and a good premium. Right, but we also ship Panamax vessels. <laughs> you know, a, a Panamax vessel is, you know, is this huge thing, but it also contains five holds in many cases. Our clients will say, all right, I want you to fill one hold of that Panamax with this variety. And that's where our supply chain really comes in. And then very often they like the quality of what we have put in and they want us to fill the Panamax. 
that allows us to to play in both in both arenas. I noted that as you work with your growers, you were establishing price, and it wasn't necessarily tied to the Chicago Board of Trade, not the volatility that many have come to expect and to see. Right. That's a blessing, I think, on both sides of us. The organic market is non-hedgeable. It is a flat rate price. Currently, uh, organic white corn is about $10 per bushel. Organic soybeans uh, are about 20 dollars per bushel. That is not tied to any market volatility. We primarily forward contract, so we have those contracts prior to planting. In our contracts, we also have early price out as well. So the non-GM premiums are a premium above board, but there is early pricing options, which most of our growers took advantage of as they saw this volatility coming. They were able to price out early and avoid and kind of shield themselves from the from the last three months' volatility. There's also advantages to some of those contracts in time of delivery. We uh, we take advantage of their on-farm storage and, and help them pay some of that carry as well. So uh, there, there's a lot of things that are advantageous in the in that market in the organic and and the specialty market that helps to diversify those farms and helps them to to take advantage of, of the of the market upswings, but also helps them to take advantage of of some methods to kind of shield them away from some of the the current political volatility. Is your business being influenced now as much as other by the trade rhetoric, the tariffs, and the trade war? We are somewhat less than some of the others. Our current customer base is not not based in China so much. Uh, Our current customer base is more around Canada, Japan, uh, Southeast Asia, Korea. So we've been paying very close attention to the discussions around the TPP. We would certainly welcome any advances on the TPP that that would come through. We think it was a very good agreement for agriculture and certainly advantageous for us and our growers. Uh, we don't have a lot of exposure to China. We have uh, some exposure to the NAFTA 2.0 uh, agreements. We think those have been very positive to agriculture, and, and we do quite a bit of trade with Canada. We do quite a bit of trade with Mexico. So... We've been really very blessed that the policymakers in Washington have taken a special interest in, and have taken the organic trade and, and the specialty markets into consideration as they're formulating the farm bills, as they're formulating some of these uh, considerations around the TPP and around NAFTA. From the position where you sit, what, do, what does the organic leadership in the U.S. need to do? What's lacking with regard to definition or regard to position to continue to grow the industry? The thing that the the thing that the organic industry needs to uh, perhaps embrace is the the idea of scale. So I think there will be a, a lot of conversation around local and small scale versus. Uh, large-scale organic production, not only within row crops, but within fruits and vegetables and tree crops. Uh, if we are going to continue to grow organic on on the on the protein side, on the poultry side, on the dairy side, etc., uh, we need to have more domestic production. We are currently in in 2017. We imported over 70 percent 
of our organic soybeans. We imported over 50% of our organic corn from parts of the world that um, that the integrity of those organic imports was, was questionable. So we need to improve and need to expand upon our domestic uh, our domestic abilities in our domestic market, so that the uh, so that the markets are are well assured that uh, that that what is organic is organic, and and the 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 protein producers have got a very big uh, stake in this as well because it's their brand reputation. So the nice thing about the organic system is that it is it is the premier public-private partnership within the food supply chain. It can be somewhat messy. It can be a, a family gathering at a holiday. It can, you know, it, it can get a little bit, um, a little bit messy. But that is, but that is the part that as I talk to um, college students and I talk to even even my children what do you like about it what do you dislike about it it is that transparency and and they have an acceptance of of the value of that transparency and and what that does is that transfers into their happy willingness mm-hmm. to pay that price difference between conventionally produced chicken versus organically produced chicken. It's not an insignificant difference, but they have confidence in the label, they have confidence in the in the supply chain to see and pay for that value. What the National Organic Program needs to do is to um, is to follow the uh, you know follow the direction of Congress and and improve the uh, the oversight of the uh, of the of the grain imports. They need to um, continue to uh, support and expand upon uh, the research and development of of organic production methods. One of the the, the easiest thing uh, to do, and we get these phone calls quite a bit, is venture capital groups say. I have twenty million dollars or twenty thousand acres, and we want you to convert it to organic. Well, I reply back, okay, you've done the two easy things. Money is simple, land is simple because it'll follow money. The hard part is who's going to who's going to produce it? Who's going to be the grower? How are they going to do it? Because it is a skill set that is not common. So we need to we need to drastically increase the training of new farmers, have them understand that you can make a, a very good living, support your family on 500 acres versus 5,000 acres. It's a, and, and this is, this is something that the, that the community colleges, the state, the, the state colleges and universities, as well as the land grants can, can contribute to. But the, the place that I think is really that the opportunity is at the community colleges and the state schools because they are they're where the uh, you know the, the farmers are starting to get a lot of a lot of information in the Midwest uh, Western Illinois University has an outstanding program 
University of Wisconsin-Madison has a very good program. Illinois is starting to get engaged, Illinois State. Um, but some of the uh, community colleges have got excellent uh, programs as well. So if I'm reading between the lines with the volume of imports, there's opportunity for this industry to grow in the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, we need about... Uh, 250,000 acres of organic corn. We need about 500,000 acres of organic soybeans. So they're not a lot of acres. So it's not going to, you know, it's not going to crush the, uh, the, the domestic, or it's not going to crush the, the conventional market. Uh, but there are places for people to come in and play. And, you know, if you divide those numbers by, you know, 500 or 1,000 acres for, uh, for an organic operation, it's a lot of operations. It's a lot of economic uh, economic um, economic potential. Uh, a lot of positive growth. A lot of rural development uh, that that can happen. You know, kind of one step at a time without without significantly affecting the uh, the big pile. If we talk about the industry of agriculture from the top down, it's economics of scale. I can produce everything you want. I can produce it cheaper than my competitor, and I can deliver it to you at a said price. Mm-hmm. What's our takeaway from this conversation about Clarkson Grain, about U.S. agriculture, about global agriculture, but moreover about global demand for food ingredients? So the global demand for food ingredients is increasing on protein. As the world's middle class increases, that is only going to increase. How does that affect Clarkson Grain? We are able to provide a growing segment of both the domestic and the global market with products that allow them to satisfy not only their production needs and their process needs, but also their social value needs. And and what that does is that brings increased revenue domestically, it shields and insulates some of the global volatility that we've seen. Mm-hmm. And, and because of those two things, it brings revenue and it brings net profit back to the growers. This is a paradigm shift Absolutely. from World War II until now that was produced more for less, a cheap food policy. Right. This is not a cheap food policy. No, it's not. And the checkoffs were created because we had a great big pile. We had many, many great big piles. What we are doing is we're challenging that paradigm. We're challenging the paradigm that says the world needs to buy our crops because we've got a great big pile of it. What we're doing is we're saying, okay, that is a supply push, and we're having to fight tooth and nail against resistance to that supply push. What we are doing is changing that paradigm to turn it around and saying, how can I help you do your job better? How can I create demand pull? And I think that is not only a good business model for Clarkson Grain, but I think it's also a good business model for many of the commodities. How do you think about changing that from lowest cost production, biggest pile supply push to asking perhaps a a little bit more of a vulnerable question, what can I do to help you? How do I make the U.S. and how do I make Clarkson Grain your favored supplier? Because... I'm able to help you do your job better, which means there's more value in that supply chain for our growers. It's a completely different way to look at it, and it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge in mindset. It's a big challenge in the metrics that our growers think about to be successful. 
it's not just about I have ultra clean fields there are no weeds and I grow 80 bushel soybeans that's the mindset for success for many of the U.S. growers to how do I maximize the net profit per acre on that ground and how do I diversify my operation to take advantage of these growing markets that are much more about satisfying the customer's values rather than perhaps growing 80 bushel beans all day. And, of course, the blessing of it all is that in the U.S. we can have both. Ken Dahlmeyer with us of Clarkson Grain. Ken, busy time of year for you, and you took time to be with us on the AgriPulse Open Mic, and it is open mic, so you get the last word. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I certainly appreciate the attention for Clarkson Grain. It's a fascinating time to be in this business. We certainly have appreciated the support in the two farm bills. We look forward to the conference committees and how they're going to bring those together. And we look forward to serving this growing industry and helping to influence and drive it. Our thanks to Clarkson Grain Company's Ken Dahlmeyer, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. America's crop insurance industry is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Crop insurance remains the smartest and most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.